Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Kill Count, the podcast that dissects the deaths in some of your favourite horror movies. Each week we dive into a classic film from Universal Monsters to Hitchcockian horrors to Blumhouse. But to make it a bit more interesting, each episode the team will attempt to remember the number of kills that occur and vitally the gruesome details of these cinematic slayings. One host, who we like to call the Crypt Keeper, is the only one who knows which film we'll be discussing each week and the two co-hosts will have their knowledge put to the test. Each week we'll rotate the Keeper just to keep things interesting and we'll keep score across the season to see whose kill count knowledge reigns supreme. I'll be your Crypt Keeper this week. My name's Mike. I'm a producer, film journalist and horror podcaster and joining me to discuss this week's film are my two regular co-hosts, horror junkie Ali. Hello. Hello. How are you, Mike? I'm all right. How are you coping in lockdown so far? I haven't gone completely crazy yet, but um, you know, I have started like banging my head against the walls during certain hours of the day. <laughs> uh, and I'm also joined by B-movie enthusiast, Dan. Hello, Dan. Good morning to you, Mike. So obviously, uh, the past few weeks, we have been playing the game where you guys didn't know what film we were going to be watching ahead of the recording. Uh, but we've changed up the format a little bit for this week, haven't we, Ali? We have indeed. I think we've decided to kind of a, a quarantine edition. Uh, and if we decide that this format's working, we might carry it forward. This time around, you actually let us know the film in advance. And we turned in our guesses completely Google free. Uh, about a few days ago. And then since then, we've both revisited the film. So this time around, we should have it fresh in our minds for discussion. Excellent. So uh, as you guys know, this week's film is going to be John Landis's 1981 classic, An American Werewolf in London. Did you hear that? What was it? A coyote. There aren't any coyotes in England. What happened to them? Well, the police report said they were attacked by an escaped lunatic. Must have been a very powerful man. Before I hear what your guesses were, let me just ask you both a little bit about your relationships with this film. Dan, are you a fan of American Werewolf in London? I'm a very big fan. I watched this really late in life, I feel. And it's one of those movies that as soon as it finished, I was like, I love this movie. There was no doubt in my mind. Yeah, I absolutely love it. Uh, it's one of my all-time favorites. Ali, what about you? When did you first see this movie? Do you remember? I think I might have seen it once or twice in my late teens, but it was actually about six or seven years ago at uni that I kind of fully appreciated it because, and I'm quite proud of this fact, it's a little silly, but I wrote an essay about it for a film module in uni, and it was the highest mark I've ever gotten on an essay in school. 
Oh, well done. Obviously, when I st- when I did the, the essay, I was watching the film. I was watching pieces and scenes from the film over and over and over again. So, at the time, I was really familiar with it. Wow. And were, were, were the sort of kill counts uh, fresh in your head uh, from a few years ago? No. <laughs> I mean, my guess, after I revisited the film, after giving you my guess, I was ashamed of myself. <laughs> it's such a fun film to revisit. And I've seen it so many times, but I, I was the same as you, to be honest. I forgot just how many people get killed and torn apart in this film because in my head there weren't that many kills so i'm going to hear both of your predictions in just a moment first of all just a quick reminder of the rules for listeners so ali and dan have both uh, given me predictions of how many kills they think occur in american werewolf in london we will then go through all of the kills one by one at the end whoever gets the correct number will earn one point and if neither ali or dan get it right i as the crypt keeper will get a point and we are slowly keeping score across the series so far Ali, I believe you're winning, aren't you? I think it's two points to you, one to me, zero to Dan. Is that correct? That would be correct. And I think the important point to point out is that Dan is losing. <laughs> Dan, is this, your, is, this, is this the week you're going to take this back? I honestly don't know anymore, Mike. I'm just taking it day by day. <laughs> um, I guess we'll find out in 40 minutes whether I have a point or not. We will indeed. So first of all, then I want to hear what your predictions were. Uh, So you made these predictions completely Google free before you'd revisited the film. Dan, what number did you go for? So I went for six because uh, it's a little bit satanic, a little bit nefarious. Um, And I don't know if you had this, Ali, but when I rewatched the film, I was so lost in in the action that I didn't find myself counting the kills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was kind of like that as well. I did half that number because <laughs> I'm oh, it was no. terrible. I know. I'm so sorry. When I was watching it, to be honest, I kind of lost track of how many deaths there actually are, so I don't I still don't have any clue because there are quite a few. Um Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and you know, this is going to be interesting going forward uh, as we discuss this film because some of them, I guess, can bring up a slight bone of contention in that some kills are dreams and so mm. do they count etc um but that's my decision so we'll see how we go there uh, so ali <laughs> you went three and dan you went six so american Wolf in london just to give you a bit of background info it was directed by john landis who uh is is quite is, is a bit of a legend but previously to this he had directed a whole bunch of comedy films so blues brothers kentucky fried movie national lampoons animal house uh, so he had a real background in comedy which i think comes through in this film because I don't know about you guys, but I think this film is just as much funny as it is scary. Did you think that? 100%. Yeah. It's one of like the first things I think about with this movie is the tonal balance. And I remember reading that um, studios struggled a bit with the script because they thought it was too funny to be a horror and too scary to be a comedy at times. Um, But John Landis just balances it perfectly. It's like right on the money. This and Evil Dead together kind of ushered in that era of we want to give you enough scares, but we also kind of want to have this underbelly of, of humor. A naked American man stole my balloon. What? It stars David Norton, who plays David. Uh, we've got Jenny Agata, who plays nurse Alex Price, and Griffin Dunn as David's poor best friend, Jack. The movie kicks off in the back of a van, at the back of a truck full of sheep, basically. And we, we were introduced to our main characters, David and Jack, as they kind of, they've hitchhiked a ride on the back of this van. They're two American travellers travelling in England, and they're up in the sort of Yorkshire Moors. They're up in the north of England. Uh, they stumble off the back of this truck 
full of sheep and then into a pub called the Slaughtered Lamb, which I think is quite apt, really. Ali, you're an American in London, aren't you? Oh, is that yes. correct? I was, oh, yeah. was going to make that point, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you experienced this kind of weirdness in England as an American? I've lived here a long time now, so it's not weird anymore. Uh, <laughs> but I will say, watching that scene, it's the most true-to-life pub scene I've ever seen in a film. <laughs> like Those characters feel so authentic. I could walk into any pub in, maybe not necessarily in London, but like back in like the countryside and experience the same kind of cast of characters, maybe with less pantograms. <laughs> There's quite a few people in that pub that are kind of British actors, well-known British actors, and they've popped up in a lot of kind of TV shows and sitcoms and that kind of thing. Um, but probably the most recognisable one is Rick Mayle. So star of The Young yes. Ones, Bottom, Drop Dead Fred, a whole bunch of other stuff. Ali, did you recognise Rick Mayle at all? Um, that would be a no from me, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so they walk into this pub. Jack notices a five-pointed star on the wall. Very suspicious. Um, when he starts to ask the locals about it, they become increasingly hostile. So Jack and David decide to leave. Before they go, the locals warn them, stick to the roads, steer clear of the moors and beware the moon. Being the idiots that they are, David and Jack exit the pub and they decide to trek straight across the moors. Ali, who is our first kill of the film? That would be Jack. Correct. This is a particularly grisly death. It really goes to town with all of the blood and gore, especially when he's having his neck kind of torn apart and everything. It's pretty it's pretty nasty stuff, right? What I like about the scene other than the direction is that it just doesn't it doesn't mess around. Like you know that something bad is going to happen and they've been warned multiple times and yet they go onto the moors and they're like, "Oh, maybe it's just like a dog or something," but you know exactly what's going to happen. And as I said, Landis just gets that suspense right on. If one of us was attacked by a werewolf on the moors, would you guys come back and save them? Do you know, I mean... I'd like to think that I would be really heroic, but I'd probably get the fuck out of there, to be honest. Yeah, I guess you would, wouldn't you? Yeah. It's that fight or flight thing, I suppose, isn't it? Well, no, I was going to say, actually, this uh, this scene and then kind of subsequently all of the carnage that comes after that in the film. I love that moment in the pub when they make the Alamo joke. Look at that. It's a five-pointed star. Well, maybe the owners are from Texas. <laughs> Remember the Alamo. It's just such a like hilarious uh, predecessor to all of the violence to come by kind of referencing this American historical uh, event that's just full of bloodshed. <laughs> so they're attacked by this wolf. Jack is killed. David is injured. He's he's about to be killed and then is saved by the locals. Dan, who's the second kill of the film? It is that naked old guy. I believe, that naked old guy in the field. <laughs> that That's actually how he's credited in the film. <laughs> it's the werewolf who, after he is shot and killed, then transforms back into a human being. So David, who has been attacked, very importantly, uh, and bitten by this werewolf, uh, is about to fall unconscious, but he sees just before he drops unconscious that this werewolf has been turned back into a man. So there we go. Five minutes in and we've got two kills already. Uh, Jack and the naked old man werewolf. Um, Ali, how confident are you feeling about your three so far? Oh, oh, so confident. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so cut to a few weeks later now and David uh, wakes up in a hospital. We meet 
nurse Alex Price, played by Jenny Agatha. She informs David that his friend Jack was attacked by an escaped lunatic, but David insists that they were killed by some kind of rabid dog. And at this point, David, while he's in the hospital, he starts suffering from some strange dreams. This is where we get our next kill in our first dream sequence. This is a scene in which David is happily in his home with his family. Of course, it is a dream. Uh, He's with his two younger siblings and his two parents. All of a sudden, all of these kind of Nazi zombie characters burst into their home and begin shooting all of them. All right already. You just get this off-the-wall scene out of nowhere. You don't see it coming at all. Uh, And then the second time I watched it, I was able to take in, like, the imagery and maybe what it meant a bit more. But I really love these wacky hallucination scenes in in horror movies. I found one really interesting way of interpreting the film was as David as sort of an othered Jewish figure. And when I watched the film this time, I was struck by the Jewish imagery in his home. Like they shoot a menorah and obviously the fact that they are Nazis is kind of like not lost on me. Um, So I don't know if Landis intended that, uh, but... It's an interesting interpretation. Any idea how many people get killed within this dream sequence by the by the sort of killer Nazis? Five. It's his entire family? It, that him. is correct. It is yeah. his little sister, his little brother, his mum, his dad. They, those four are all gunned down. And then David himself gets his throat slashed, which brings us up to seven kills in total so far. Neither of you guys are getting the point this week. <laughs> You're sitting pretty, Mike. <laughs> I'm sitting pretty. And then we get a really interesting post-dream little sting. Is he just gallivanting about naked? Well, no. This is actually a really clever little double cross. Dan, do you remember what happens here? Oh, yes. Yeah, so you think you're back. Oh, it's just a dream. Let me open the curtains. And it's another Nazi troll wolf guy. And then David wakes up a second time. So it was a little trick, dream within a dream. So another kill occurred just there. So that is kill number eight. So these dreams and hallucinations kind of continue throughout the first act of the film. And David actually starts seeing his friend Jack uh, torn apart, but undead. The supernatural, the power of darkness, it's all true. The undead surround me. Have you ever talked to a corpse? It's boring. I'm lonely. Take your life, David. Kill yourself before you kill others. The makeup effects are pretty amazing. Rick Baker worked on this film, who is a bit of a legend when it comes to makeup effects and that kind of thing. Mm, Yeah, I was going to say, when are we actually going to say the big man's name? Like Rick Baker, Rick Baker, Rick Baker, you know? The Jack makeup is like unparalleled in terms of what had been done before. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it won the special effects for for makeup in the Academy Awards that year. Yeah, Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Rightfully so. I couldn't take my eyes off of like the little fold of skin that was just always constantly flapping while he was talking. (laughs) Um, Oh, it's so gross. Yeah. It's it's gnarly. It's not uncanny valley territory. It's not so phony looking that it feels fake. It feels, it looks really, really real. (laughs) I kind of think this era of the sort of late 70s and early 80s is the best it's ever been for kind of horror makeup effects. When you look at like Dawn of the Dead, The Thing, Friday the 13th, 
and people like Rick Baker and Tom Savini and Jallo and all of these other films. Like th- this is like peak time, right, for nasty, gruey, gory effects. Absolutely, and I think like I would I would put uh, American Wolf in London up there with like The Thing and The Fly as three movies that just have amazing practical effects that came out around this time. Agreed. Uh, and I think one other thing to consider is the objective of these effects being to really communicate this this horrificness that you're seeing on screen. And uh, it might be a bit of a labored take, but compare it to CGI, where you can clearly see in front of you that this has been generated on a computer. There's just, uh, for me, a canyon of difference viscerally seeing like Rick Baker effects and CGI. Yeah, there's just something so much more tangible, isn't there, about yeah. it? Like it's so much more solid and real and it works so much better for me than CGI. Um, I don't know whether you guys have seen, there was a sequel to this film, a really terrible sequel called American Werewolf in Paris, uh, which uh, features some really bad CGI. And I think that's how you know just how much better practical effects work compared to, to CGI ones. Absolutely. Continuing the film then, everything kind of, this is where the film kind of veers a little bit more into comedy, almost like rom-com territory. And we don't have any kills for a while, but for the rest of the day, Alex and David are kind of bonding and they're flirting. And I don't know whether this is protocol for nurses with their patients, but she invites David back to her place to stay because he's got nowhere to go and tells him that she finds him very sad and very attractive. And uh, then the two of them take a shower together and have sex so you know it's not all bad for david is it really yeah his vacation is turning out pretty good i would say (laughs) i mean his friend died but hey he got the girl he got the girl you know uh and and it kind of turns into this like quite quaint little fun uh romance for a while we have the two of them kind of frolicking about in london together getting the tube together he's pulling funny faces that kind of thing we're all london residents here did we notice like how much has changed about london since uh since you know the london that's portrayed in this film one thing that stood out to me was the prices and because like they're in a shop and then there's they're at a new stand and they get told the prices and they're like oh man it's so expensive here and i was just thinking like wait another 40 years and then <laughs> you'll see yeah, I I think like that's one of my favorite things about this film, especially being a resident. It's like so many things feel incredibly familiar because obviously it's such a historical city that a lot of things have remained virtually the same, but other things feel very dated, uh, including like adverts. And one thing that really stuck out to me that might be controversial, but I was like, when was Wendy's available in the UK? There are tons of adverts for Wendy's, which is an American food chain that is not available in the UK now. And I had no clue that it was. That is really interesting, isn't it? And I wondered that as well. And I thought either at some point Wendy's was a thing in the UK, which I don't think is the case, or maybe for rights reasons, they didn't didn't want to put English brands and they, for, for whatever reason, maybe were legally allowed to put Wendy's there and maybe they replaced the posters or something. I don't know. Because yeah, that did really strike me as well. Meanwhile, we've got this other kind of B plot where a doctor from the London hospital, Dr. Hirsch, takes a little road trip up to the slaughtered lamb up north, talks to the pub goers who tell him that, again, David is going to transform into a monster in the next full moon. So we've got a lot of this building dread. And then finally, we get to 
the full moon. So David is left alone in uh, Alex's London pad. She's gone to work. He's kind of killing time. He's a little bit bored. He's watching telly. And then the sun sets and the moon rises. And then we have this iconic transformation sequence. Help me! How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This scene is probably the one that even if you haven't seen the film, you've heard of it. Yeah, it's amazing. And I, I know I heard John Landis speak about how unforgiving he made the whole thing. Like he he wanted it to be really, really brightly lit, um, which is, you know, a big no-no for practical effects artists. They, you know, it would have been much easier to do this in kind of dim, dark, shadowy lighting. Uh, he wanted that kind of bright, garish living room light on the whole time. Uh, David had all of these horrible kind of prosthetics and everything. And, and it would take, you know, six hours of makeup for one shot that would last half a second and then they would reset and get ready for the next one. I realised that they take more time and uh, craftsmanship and you know it, it took them like how many weeks to shoot this sequence but I think the proof is in the pudding like when it comes to end product. Weirdly, the thing that it always reminds me of is the thing that I saw first before American Werewolf in London. I grew up obsessed with Michael Jackson's thriller. Of course, the music video itself was directed by John Landis, and it's essentially the same sequence. It's the same practical effects. I think they recreated the same sequence almost, but with Michael Jackson. Uh, Do you guys remember that music video? Oh, yeah, that's the stuff mm. of nightmares. I know, I know, I know. Um, but it holds up pretty well. And and this this sequence is absolutely amazing. So now at this point, David has transformed into a werewolf. And now we get 
a next little run of deaths. Can you guys remember, Dan, any idea what the next kill is? It looks like a slightly uh, well-off couple that they're going to a dinner party or something and then the wife hears something outside or something to that effect. Yeah, you're close. This couple, Harry and Judith, uh, Mm. they get out of a cab. I think they've been to a dinner party. They're pretty much just attacked in the street there and then. Hey, did you hear something? Just now? Yes. No. That's kills nine and ten. See, um, these are the two kills that I I forgot about. I just I, um, I skipped right over them to the tube scene because to me that's just so much more memorable and there's a lot of metaphorical kind of symbolism and using the tube as a space for like a demon dog essentially mm. um but this sequence like it's light-hearted in a way they're really they're just going to do a nice dinner party and having a lovely time and then um they're just torn to shreds. I know it is. It's uh, it is like it's kind of creepy and funny at the same time. I think a lot of these sequences. You mentioned the 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 kill on the tube. There's another three kills even before that one. Oh yes, Dan. Any ideas? <laughs> it's uh, the three homeless guys at Tower Bridge. Oh yes, it is. It is. And to be fair, it's very it's very fleeting, and we don't really see them die. Look there. A longer sequence was filmed with the, or it was intended to be filmed anyway, with the three homeless men being viciously murdered. But I think to get this film down to an R rating, certain things had to be cut. Yeah, it's, yeah, uh, totally. I I can believe that because it does seem like it's been cut in some way, but it works Mm. quite well. You kind of get the build up. They hear that weird noise. And then suddenly you just get the roar of the wolf as he attacks them. And then it kind of cuts straight to the next sequence. Um, Mm. And then we get, as you mentioned, Ali, the the murder set piece on Tottenham Court Road tube station. (laughs) Good Lord. In fact, I was going to mention how well shot this sequence is. Um, And this this whole sequence to me is part of uh, a trio of scenes in this movie that are just like stellar. and specifically, there's one shot, if you remember it, it's looking down uh, the escalator and the wealth like creeps into the shot. That That is the one, I think, where you see the wolf. It's far away, but you see it like crawling on all fours. You're like, oh boy, this isn't going to end well. It's amazing that. And I think you're right. He chooses exactly when is the right time to show it and when isn't. And it makes it really creepy, I think, just seeing it sort of slowly creep into frame like that. Although I will say, when are you ever on the tube alone? I know. Yeah. I was thinking that that's something that's dated it, isn't it? Because it's like, really, would the tube ever be that quiet? Although I, I don't know, because these days the tube's 24 hours, isn't it? And, and if you got one at like four in the morning, maybe maybe it would be that quiet. I don't know. That's true. And especially during this quarantine period. <laughs> yeah, very <laughs> you true. might be very more true. than likely to be on the tube alone. <laughs> I know, that's it. Um, so there you go. That's another, what, six deaths. So we're up to 14 kills now so far. You know, standalone films even, I don't think... That they had that many kills, especially from this era. I know, um, I know. Or I just, I never think about them having that many kills, but this one is like carnage galore. Absolute carnage from start to start to finish. It's great. Before we move on, I want to quickly ask you if you were being stalked by a vicious monster or beast or killer on the London underground, how would you survive? I mean, I feel like any opportunity to push him onto the tracks as a tube train is coming into the station they warn you not to get too close you can't stay past those yellow lines so get him (laughs) past those yellow lines 
That's good. That's good. I think That's that would good. work. Dan, what about you? I think I would end up, <laughs> this is like my answer every time. I think I would end up like <laughs> Gerald and I would get lost in the labyrinth. Um, you I just have hope... no faith in your survival. <laughs> no, I'm screwed. Mm. What is it that happens in um, that James Bond film where he jumps onto the end of a moving tube to get home and there's like the quippy one-liner from some commuter going, oh man, he really wants to get home, doesn't he? Maybe you could do that. You know, you could just jump onto the end of a, a moving train and zip away as quick as possible. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's surely nice and simple, right? Easy to do. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. So, uh, so there we go. So, that was our little next run of kills. The next morning, David wakes up in London Zoo uh, naked with no memory of what happened. We've got that really funny sequence now. It just suddenly turns into like British seaside slapstick humor, really, where you've just got this naked guy running around, like covering his genitalia with various things and people looking at him shocked and laughing and stuff. Come on. Haven't we all woken up naked at the London Zoo? (laughs) We've all been there. (laughs) I love it. It's 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 so good, and it's a nice little. It's like a little palate cleanser after all the horror of the night before. Um, And somehow he manages to make it work. But yeah, it's great. Um, So David, then he's having a bit of a crisis that day. I think it's safe to say Um, he hears about the murders. He doesn't know what to do. He thinks about killing himself. He rings his family. He wants to talk to them before he does it. Um, There's a kind of sort of crazy kind of nervous breakdown that he has in the middle of Trafalgar Square. Um, He can't go through with killing himself. And then he follows his dead friend Jack, or his undead friend Jack, into an adult movie theatre, into a CD Soho porn cinema. David sits in the cinema and he kind of has a conversation with every single person that he's killed uh, the night before. So we see the kind of undead bodies of all of his victims. And look at me, here I sit in a porno theater in Piccadilly Circus talking to a corpse. We really need to talk about the porn film. I mean, I know that <laughs> I know that, that sounds a bit silly to say, but it's really funny. And I like that it's advertised in previous scenes, like in the scene on the tube, you see a giant poster for See You Next Wednesday. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I just love the absurdity of the film. Like these two characters are in the middle of having sex and another character just walks in. Do you think that's a real a real movie or did they shoot it? For they, I, I read that they did. They shot it. It was the very first thing they um, shot in production. I love it because, again, there's something, considering this is actually an American-made film, there's something so brilliantly British and, like, real about that porn film. Like, that is the kind of, like, British smut <laughs> that I could imagine playing, like, in the 70s on a porn cinema. It's almost like kind of carry-on film, but, like, more smutty. It's- yeah hilarious like they they get it spot on really Um, also if we were going to say how london has changed in 40 years i don't see as many adult uh cinemas just available to walk into anymore (laughs) especially not like the middle of piccadilly circus (laughs) after having a little chat with members of the undead about different ways in which he could potentially kill himself uh david then starts to transform for the final time Uh, and then we get our next bunch of kills. Ali, do you want to take a guess at, at, at kind of who or how many people we see ki- get killed uh, next? I mean, not really. I honestly, <laughs> watching the film, I couldn't keep track of how many people died in the next five minutes. I know that he murders a few people still in the cinema, but then once he's out the gate and in, is he in Piccadilly Circus? Uh, it's yeah. kind of all bets are off. 
Exactly. Uh, totally. Yeah. So I, I kind of had to cheat and sort of look up some other sort of sources to get the exact number for this. Most of them seem to be in agreement that we get four people killed inside the cinema. So I think those are the four other men that are sat watching the porn film, basically, who we see at the beginning. So they're all killed, as well as uh, the usher. Then the wolf breaks out of the cinema into Piccadilly Circus. Dan, any ideas of how many people we then see get killed? Uh, in this scene, I have zero idea, to, to be frank. Like, I, I know people die, but it's just so many cuts, so many shots. It's it's manic. It's like bordering on comedic. I don't know if that was intentional, but it reminded me a bit of the Blues Brothers crash. I, I don't know, four kills, I guess, but it's so difficult. The scene is so chaotic. <laughs> The first one we see that we do actually see quite clearly is the the werewolf bursts out of that movie theatre and he attacks the police inspector and bites his head clean off and we see his head fly off and roll into the road. We then get six more deaths. Uh, That's people that are attacked by the wolf, people that die in car crashes, people that are trapped between two cars. So we're up to 26 kills uh, so far um, if you include all of the carnage in central London. It's giving Invisible Man a run for its money almost. It really is, isn't it? It really is going for it. And in some ways, it's more worthy of that sort of mantle than Invisible Man because it's not just offing 100 people on a train in in one go. Um, So then that's it. So the wolf kills a whole bunch of people and is then cornered in an alley by a whole bunch of police officers with guns. Uh, And then we have our final kill of the film. That would unfortunately be David. It is David himself. So David is cornered in the alley as a werewolf, obviously. Um, The love of his life, Alex, turns up. She sees this poor wolf. She kind of fights her way through all the crowds of people and she approaches David in the alley. Then suddenly David goes to pounce on her. The police shoot him and straight away cut to black, cut to credits. There's sort of like a, well, it's not a conspiracy theory, but there's like fan theories about how he doesn't actually turn into a werewolf in this film. I don't know if you've ever heard these, but but people say you could interpret the film from the perspective of the psychological where he's actually just so traumatized from his friend being killed that he goes into like psychotic states where he's killing people, but he's not actually transforming into a wolf. Also, those scenes earlier on in the movie where you see him naked as a man running through the woods mm. and taking down a deer. Mm-hmm. So, it's really interesting. I'm going to have to look more into that theory. That's uh, intriguing. I always forget just how abruptly the film ends mm-hmm. in a way. Uh, Dan, did you think it's too abrupt or do you think it ends at the exact right moment there for you? I would say it ends at the, at the right moment, yeah. Um, there was this thing that my old uh, professor would always say when I was studying film. If you're a filmmaker and you've told your story, it's finished naturally. You get out of there. There's nothing, you know, don't faff around, just pack it up and get out. Uh, and I think that's absolutely the case for American Wealth in London because anything more would just be excess. It would be fat to the story. So I'm, I'm absolutely pro the abrupt ending. I don't know if you're the same, Ali. I wasn't until you said that. And you know what? You've convinced me that actually from, from a beat perspective... That makes sense. Uh, you just sort of had this huge... It feels like you've been building and building and building it the entire film and then it swells in that whole Piccadilly Circus sequence. And then, yeah, you kind of have one last bang and you're right. What what good would a few more scenes where Alex is 
grieving or the doctor says, oh, maybe he really was a wolf after all. Plus, I also think that the ending, the abrupt ending works really well because of the credit song. I know. So good. I mean, the soundtrack is so good all the way through this film, actually, mm-hmm. between like Van Morrison and Blue Moon and Bad Moon Rising and all of these great songs. Uh, all those moon songs. All those moon songs. I love it. It's yeah, it's great. And I guess, you know, throughout the whole film, we're so much aligned with David. We are we're basically seeing everything from David's point of view from the from the first scene through to the end and it's like once David's dead that's it the film's done isn't it basically so yeah I kind of like how how economical it is and how it just like there's Mm -hmm. no fat on this film it feels like it's like just in and out so there you go so that was the final kill of the film Dan you guessed six Ali you guessed three (laughs) there were 27 kills in American Werewolf in London Um, so that means I get a point so I think the scores now are what two to Ali two to me and Dan is yet to score story of my life (laughs) before we wrap up I want to go to uh, B-movie of the week and Ali I believe you have got our recommendation for B-movie of the week I do indeed. I am so excited to talk about this film. I I think I've mentioned this film to Dan before in passing, but I don't know that I went into specifics. So have either of you seen 1989's Hider in the House? No, I don't think you have mentioned it to me. Okay. Well, it is starring one of my favorite erratic B-movie actors of all time. I don't know if either of you can guess. Dan, maybe you could guess. Is it Gary Busey? Oh, it is Gary Busey. (laughs) (laughs) That is so so on brand from you. It (laughs) is. It is. I love Gary Busey, guys. He's, He's just perfect in everything he's in. But especially, I mean, this is like his crowning gem. The basic premise is he is a troubled um, young man who had an abusive home life. And he, when we meet him at the beginning of the film, he's just getting out of a psych ward and he doesn't have anywhere to live. Um, but he is really fixated on the idea of wanting family because he never had the family growing up that he always wanted. So he kind of stumbles upon this empty property that someone has just bought, this big, huge, beautiful suburban home. He breaks in prior to the family moving in, goes up to the attic, and it's this huge attic. And he builds a false room just out of some wood that he finds. And he decides that he's going to live in the house because he has seen the family that's moving in. And he becomes infatuated with the mother played by Mimi Rogers. And he sort of thinks, oh, if I can live in the attic, I can be a part of their family too. And he sets up uh, cameras throughout the house so that he can watch them or listen, or at least maybe microphones so that he can listen to them. It gets scarier and spookier and kookier as he becomes more and more infatuated with the mother. He fakes uh, the father, the husband, having an affair so that the mother will break up with him so that he can be with the mother. What's really funny about this is that they had a psychologist on set to make sure that the character was, I guess, is true to whatever they were trying to do with him as possible. And Gary Busey was quoted as saying that this was an NAR film, a no acting required role, (laughs) because he was the character. Oh my God. And it's a shame that no one really saw this film because I think it was meant to be distributed theatrically. And then the production company um, went under or something to that effect. And so it was only shown in select cinemas for like a week. So remind us of the name of it one more time. Hider in the House. Hider in the House. Amazing. A really good name. I'll definitely be checking that out. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us for another Death by Death breakdown of a classic horror film. For more Kill Count content, check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Kill Count Pod. You can also watch tons of great horror content on Fear, the home of horror on YouTube. All links are in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening and join us again next time for Kill Count. Kill Count Podcast is hosted by Ali Penelope, Dan Yakunov, and Mike Munzer. Produced by Jay Cunningham, Jake Yard, Ali, Dan, and Mike. Edited by Jamie Maisner and Charlie Grace. Artwork and social media by Ugne Dereshkevichuda. Hello, if you're still listening, here's a little post-credit treat for you. Uh, this week, Dan is going to bring us a horror haiku. And we're going to try and guess what film he's talking about. Dan, take it away. Green, tiny terror. Don't you dare steal all his gold. Watch out, Aniston. Dan, 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 Dan. You've you've made this too easy. <laughs> is it is it too easy, Mike? Have you got it? I think so. Yeah. Uh, is it Leprechaun? It yeah, is. I was gonna yeah, say Leprechaun. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was well written. It's just when you when you add in actors' names specifically as well, you know, yeah, it kind of becomes too a... much. I wanted to try and fit in there somehow that Jennifer Aniston hates being in this movie, like like that she did this movie. She's, I think she's been trying to bury oh, it. Oh right, right. Um, oh nice. I couldn't couldn't quite fit it in. You should have done the haiku about one of the, the sequels, like Leprechauns in the Hood or something, because <laughs> I wouldn't have gotten that one. <laughs> yeah, next time it's my turn. I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. <laughs> these, ha- these haikus can just get more and more deep cut week by week. I like it. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.